You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 38, we'll read down to verse 42. Matthew 12, verse 38, let us always remind ourselves these are words that have been given to us by God. God breathed words, inspired words, inerrant words. The Bible says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's go to our God together and ask His blessing on the preaching of His Word. Father in heaven, thank You for the joy, the privilege we have each Lord's Day to gather together and to sing Your praises and to celebrate the truths of the gospel. Even as we've sung this morning of our forgiveness due to the representation and the vicarious suffering of our Savior, Lord, would you bless today as we open your word together? Would you grant clear thinking, clear communication? Would you strengthen us in our inner man to receive the things you've given to us? And may the result be good fruit. Thank you, Lord, for the clear testimony of Sully this morning. Thank you for the joy of witnessing his baptism. And may you continue to save. May this be the day that someone hearing me comes to know your son for real in genuine faith. And may your church be washed and in that way corrected and encouraged. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior and King. In Jesus' name, amen. Beware of condemning in others what you refuse to condemn in yourself. Beware of condemning in others what you refuse to condemn in yourself. This is an amazing thing about sinful human beings, we have the capacity to recognize, rightly recognize, foolishness in someone else without recognizing that we are characterized by the same foolishness. We read about the scribes and the Pharisees, how they responded to the signs that Jesus performed, how they responded to the miracles. I mean, overwhelming not only by what Jesus did, but overwhelming by the volume of what Jesus did. And we see those scribes and Pharisees slow to believe, refusing to believe. And we say how foolish they were to see such things and not be convinced. How could you not be convinced? And then not recognize that we live in a generation that at this very moment, rejects 
divinely communicated evidence that should secure its faith in God's Son. God has given sufficient evidence for sinners to be saved, but sinners are stubborn in their unbelief, refusing to believe what God has given to them. This is the lying self-praise of the sinner. To believe what characterized someone else doesn't characterize us, even when there's abundant evidence that it does characterize us. It's amazing, even the scribes and Pharisees who were slow to believe still believe they were different from their unbelieving forefathers. Matthew 23, 29, our Lord said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Monuments erected in honor of prophets, some of whom gave their lives. I mean, their blood was shed for their faithfulness to announce what God gave them to announce. And here are the scribes and Pharisees you know, laying wreaths, as it were, at these monuments saying, if we had been alive at that time, we would not have responded to these prophets the way that our forefathers did, even as they are seeking the life of the Son of God. Our Lord went on to say, For thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Why do you seek to kill me? Why do you seek my life? Because you're just like them. Even as you commend yourself, even as you lie to yourself and try to convince yourself that you are not like them. This is what the sinner does. He or she tries to convince himself that the reason I am slow to believe the Bible is not because I have an evil heart, but because I have a reasonable mind. The reason I have not yet become a Christian is not because I have an evil heart, it's because I haven't yet been given enough evidence. I'm willing to believe, I'm willing to be convinced. I just need more evidence. And what the Bible exposes, what our Lord exposes in our verses this morning, is that the problem is not with the evidence. God never gives insufficient evidence. The problem is not with the evidence. The problem is with the evaluators of the evidence. What characterizes the sinner is determined unbelief. Matthew Henry said it well. He said, None are so incurably blind as those who are resolved that they will not see. You can't help a blind man who doesn't want to see. You can't help people who are not convinced by the evidence because they don't want to be convinced by the evidence. So today, as we <clears throat> look at such a generation in our verses, as we consider such a problem, we're going to think about four truths concerning those who seek for signs but will not be given what they seek. Four truths concerning those who seek for signs but will not be given what they seek. The first thing we see about sign seekers. 
Again, I just want to make clear as we think about sign seekers in the same category, because what the sign seekers are saying is we don't yet have enough evidence. So in the same category is every sinner who has been presented with the gospel, who has been presented with the word of God, who has been called to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say, I would, if the evidence secures my honest belief, I just don't have enough evidence. Same kind of person. By the way, just a quick side note. What amazes me about this is, I want us to remember, the evidence that God gives is on behalf of the person refusing it. I mean, this is merciful communication. God, who needs nothing, God, who needs no one outside himself, is offering to the sinner the evidence the sinner needs to be saved. And the sinner is refusing the evidence as God argues on behalf of the sinner's rescue. Isn't that amazing? I'm not just refusing evidence. I'm refusing the evidence that would rescue me. That God didn't owe me. But He offers it to me because of love and mercy and grace. This is what's being refused. So what do we see here about sign seekers? The first thing we meet with is their hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of sign seekers. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. The scribes were the lawyers for the nation Israel. These are the experts in the law of God. Most of the scribes were Pharisees. So you can think of of a subset of Pharisees. Among the Pharisees, there are scribes. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that this was a continuation of the previous conversation. So in the same conversation where Jesus is accused of performing his miracles by the power of Satan, in the same conversation where Jesus has has made plain that they're in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And they're going to have to give an account for their words. In that same conversation, there's another group of Pharisees. So there's this group that accuses him of being in league with Satan. In In the same crowd, another group of Pharisees and scribes speak up and they say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Luke eleven fourteen says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. What they're asking for is something more than what they've already been given. What they've already been given was abundant evidence that answered what they they claimed to be seeking for. We want to know whether you're really from God or not. We want to know whether this is really the power of God or not. They have abundant evidence already. But they're saying they need something more. And in this communication, there is hypocrisy all over it. First of all, there's pretended respect. 
they referred to him in a very respectful way. Teacher. Teacher. And you can be sure the scribes and Pharisees did not respect Jesus as a teacher. As I just said, they belonged to a group of religious leaders. You can be sure they've had conversations with one another. They belong to a group of religious leaders that has already branded Jesus, stamped Jesus as an emissary of Satan. So why do you refer to him as teacher? A couple of reasons come to mind. One is they're mindful that there are many in the crowd who do respect him. And so to be in favor with those who do respect him, much in the same way that they were very careful with John the Baptist, they didn't want to alienate the crowd against themselves. And so they feign, they pretend respect for Jesus. Remember, Jesus has already called them evil, a brood of vipers. He's already condemned them. And so this also perhaps is meant to sort of give the appearance of reasonableness, calmness. You have have called us names, but now we're going to refer to you in a respectful manner. Jesus wasn't just calling them names. He was rightly identifying who they are. Teacher. It's hypocritical. It wasn't genuine. In fact, as Luke, the Spirit of God through Luke already told us, they were asking for these signs to test him. Not because they really want to believe in him, but they want more evidence that gives them freedom not to believe in him from their vantage point. This is hypocrisy. I couldn't help but think about in our own culture, especially in the political realm, how often people will use formal terms, terms of respect for individuals that they absolutely despise. And everybody knows they despise them. Senator, Mr. President, and many times what follows is just dripping with hatred. But you begin with a term of respect because it's what respectable people do. It's a mask. It's a face. It's not real. Pretended respect. They also pretend open-mindedness. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What do they mean by a sign? Well, a sign is a miracle. Luke says a sign from heaven is what they asked for. Matthew 16 records in another setting the same sort of request. Matthew 16, verse 1, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And as you know, this came to characterize the Jewish mindset, asking for, seeking for signs, which was a mark of their stubborn unbelief. 1 Corinthians one twenty two says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jews demand signs. What they're really saying is convince us. Convince us. Give us a sign that will convince us. Now, Nicodemus in John 3 acknowledges, as we've already noted two or three times, this is an honest Pharisee. He acknowledges that Jesus has performed signs already that indicate He is from God. In John chapter 11, the Pharisees will admit that Jesus has performed many signs. 
I mean, signs that demand belief. John eleven forty seven. 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So, so here's what they're claiming. We would believe in you if you just gave us enough evidence. And maybe when they, in Luke and Luke's account, in Matthew 16 later, maybe when they're asking for, for a sign from heaven, they, they might, may be asking for something that, that's actually in the heavens. Maybe something like the sun standing still or whatever the case may be. Give us a sign that we cannot be confused about, that absolutely, finally proves that you're the Messiah, that you're from God. It's ironic, isn't it, that when our Lord hangs upon the tree to pay for our sins, the sun refuses to shine on it for three hours. I mean, would a sign from heaven convince you? Matthew 27, 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. This is a hypocritical claim. There is no sign that would ever convince them. They don't want to believe. They aren't willing to believe. It is fake. Fake respect. Fake open-mindedness. Third, you see pretended devotion to God. Pretended devotion to God. We want a sign from heaven. A sign from God. You see, Jesus, what stands in the way of us trusting in you is we are so devoted to truth, we are so devoted to God that we're unwilling to commit because we don't want to be deceived. All we want is what's true. All we want is what's from God. And so would you give us a sign from heaven? Because you see, we're so devoted to the truth and so devoted to God, we can't, we can't settle for anything less. And as you know, our Lord's going to go on to reveal exactly what's wrong with them. What's wrong is not their devotion to God. What's wrong is that they're evil. Which means these are ungodly men pretending to be godly. And you deal with this to our very day. You have ungodly people pretending to be godly. And when they are confronted with their ungodliness, what they want to argue is that they, they are standing in the right place. You're, you, who, who are trying to rescue them, help them, show them something, you're standing in the wrong place. And the reason why they can't believe you is because the evidence is so weak. Just give me more evidence and I'll be convinced. But I just don't have enough evidence to convince me. Well, the reason in some cases that people don't have enough evidence to convince them has nothing to do with the evidence. It has to do with the evil of their own heart. They don't want to let go of their sin. And already on display in the gospel accounts are people who had believed in Jesus without signs. They heard Him teach. They watched His life. Some people, this is by the Spirit of God, of course, this, all, all salvation is explained by God. But you had people, when Jesus is presented at the temple, I mean, he hasn't engaged, he's, a, he's a, a baby, he hasn't engaged in any kind of ministry, there have been no signs performed, and there are prophecies given by men and women of God who recognize that this is the Messiah. Sign-seeking 
is not the mindset of godly people. Godly people have their faith secured by the evidence that God has chosen to give them. Not constantly seeking for something more because they are unwilling to believe. So the first thing we see in these sign seekers is that they are hypocrites. They are false in terms of their profession of godliness. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. How does Jesus answer the sign seekers? This is the second thing we see. The answer that is given to sign seekers. Verse 39, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You will not be given what you seek for. And you need to recognize that you represent something larger than yourself. You represent a kind of person. What does our Lord mean when He talks about an evil and adulterous generation. When he, when he talks about a generation, he's talking about a type of, of people, a category of people, which surely characterized Israel at this time. But any evil and adulterous generation is characterized by the same thing, a desire for signs. And so nothing of the sort of sign that you seek for is going to be given to you. To ask for a sign is an insult. It is proud, it is presumptuous, and it's futile. The Lord will not reward it. An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it. What you seek for, you will not receive. But what you have not sought for, you will receive, which is the sign of Jonah the prophet. That's what you're going to be given, the sign of Jonah the prophet. Just as Jonah became a sign to Nineveh, so Jesus will become a sign to the nation Israel and to the world that calls for repentance and faith. There's been discussion about how to understand the words, the sign of Jonah the prophet. What, what exactly is the sign? Are we meant to think about Jonah's preaching, which is mentioned later on in our text, or something else? I think the right answer is Jonah himself was the sign. What our Lord has in mind when He talks about the sign is not the preaching of Jonah, but the presence of Jonah. The way that Jonah was rescued from death. I want you to remember this. That fish that swallowed up Jonah, that was not the place where he was in danger of death, that's the place where he was rescued from death. He's in, the, he's in the ocean. He's sinking to the bottom. His head is wrapped in seaweed. He is going to die, and God sends rescue. And the fish swallows him up, and three days later he is spat up to go preach to Nineveh so that the preacher himself his return from death was the sign. Our Lord makes that clear in the following statement. No sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's return from death, as it were, becomes a sign to Nineveh. Our Lord's resurrection is going to be a sign to Israel and to the world that He is indeed the Son of God, that He is indeed the Savior of the world, that He is indeed the Messiah, which calls for the repentance and the faith of everyone who's ever been confronted with the truth about Him. D.A. Carson commenting said, It is the sign that Jonah himself was, not the sign given him or presented by him. This interpretation commonly accepts the view that the Ninevites learned what had happened to Jonah and how he got to their city. Jonah himself thus served as a sign to the Ninevites, for he appeared to them as one who had been delivered from certain death. To this very day, there is an empty tomb. You cannot produce the body of Jesus because he was raised from the dead. And this is the only proof they're going to receive. You want a sign? This is the sign. The Son of God will be raised from the dead. Some people stumble over the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus when he was crucified, when he was raised. They stumble over this statement as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. And so they ask, was Jesus in the heart of the earth and in the tomb three days and three nights? But Leon Morris represents just one of thousands of voices that clear this up for us. When he said, but the Jews did not reckon as we do. They counted the day on which any period began as one day. And they did the same with the day on which the period ended. Thus we have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days. It does not matter that neither the Friday nor the Sunday was complete. According to the method of counting and use at the time, this is the period during which Jesus would be in the heart of the earth. Matthew elsewhere speaks of Jesus as rising on the third day, Matthew 16, 21. And after three days, Matthew 27, 63, there's no reason to think that he sees any difference between these expressions. So this is the answer to hypocritical sign seekers. You will not be given what you ask for, but you'll be given what you never imagined. You're going to one day learn of the resurrection of the Son of God, and that will be the sign that you have crucified your Messiah. And it will call for your repentance and your faith. How do you explain these sign seekers? You have their hypocrisy, you have the answer they're given. Our Lord also analyzes them summarizes them, exp explains why they are what they are. What he says in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The person who never has enough evidence, the person who's always saying, you know, I would believe if you could convince me when God has already given sufficient evidence to convince. How do you explain such people? Well, they're evil. This, this explains their slowness to believe. But why the description adulterous? An evil and adulterous generation? Because in the Old Testament, marriage was an illustration of God's relationship to Israel. When the nation Israel, prior to the Babylonian captivity, when the nation Israel was characterized 
by worshiping all the false images of the nations that surrounded her, what it represented was something akin to an adulterous wife, someone unfaithful to her husband. And the reason why Israel proved to be idolatrous, unfaithful to her God, unfaithful to the covenant that Yahweh had made with Israel, the reason why she proved unfaithful is because she was evil. Jeremiah chapter 3. I want you to just turn there and look at it with me because I'm going to read it and it's a bit extended. Jeremiah chapter 3, that way you can see it with your eyes. Verses 1 through 14. Listen to what it says. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You, speaking to the nation of Israel, you have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Right? The high places where idolatry takes place. Do you see how idolatrous you are? That's what he's saying. Where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. Can I just tell you something? I personally believe that all of the climate change talk is nonsense. I believe it's a hoax. But listen to me. Even if it were true, you know who controls the planet. So that there have been times in human history when judgment from God comes in the form of weather changes and the poor condition of the land so that crops fail and there's drought and all, all sorts of things. So even if the climate were to be changing, does man stop long enough to realize if you want to talk about man's responsibility in the matter, it's his sin because the Creator controls the planet. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me, My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Right? This is what they're talking like. These, these spiritual whores. God, you're our God from our infancy as a nation. You've been our Father. Why? Why? How long will this go on? How long will you be angry with us? Verse 5, Behold, you've spoken, but you've done all the evil that you could. Even while you're calling me Father, you're pursuing these idols. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she had done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Talking about the fall of the northern kingdom. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. 
Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Not only did you not learn from your sister, you're worse than her. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. What a merciful God we serve. For all of your idolatry, if you will turn to me, I will forgive you and I will restore you. And here now, Yahweh has arrived on the earth in the Son of God, and He is offering mercy to this nation and they accuse him of being in league with Satan and claim that all they need is more evidence. When the blind have seen and the lame have walked and the dead have been raised and demon-possessed people have been delivered, they say they need more evidence. How do you explain this? It's because they're evil and they are adulterous. They are idol worshipers. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This is why it's so instructive that our Lord uses that language. History tells us that after the Babylonian captivity and the return to the land, Israel was never characterized by the kind of physical idolatry they were characterized by before the deportation. It sort of cured them. So in terms of the stone and the trees and all that stuff, it, it went away. But Jesus says, you're still adulterous, which teaches us that you don't have to have stone and tree to be an idolater. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. All you have to do to be an idolater is to substitute for God. Put something in His place. Be devoted to something in His stead. And this people will not recognize their Messiah, not because of insufficient evidence, but because they are evil and adulterous at the heart. John 1.9 says the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the explanation for sign seekers today is the same. The reason why you are not yet convinced is not because God hasn't given you enough. It's because you love darkness. And you love your idols. And you know that to come to Christ means relinquishing your idols. And so you argue that the problem is in your mind. And it is in terms of fleshly mindset and darkness. But in reality, the problem is your heart evil, and idolatrous. So you see their hypocrisy. You see their answer. You see what explains them. Fourth thing you see, you see their judgment. 
their judgment, the judgment of sign seekers. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Where does sign-seeking lead? It leads to condemnation. In the case of Nineveh, there, there was an obedient response when Jonah showed up. The sign wasn't wasted. The greatest, one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world, this outpouring of salvation, as there was true repentance and genuine faith, in response to the message of a prophet who didn't even want to go. But God rescued that prophet in a way and delivered him from death in a way that the sign struck the hearts of the people who witnessed it. And the message was received and repentance was the result. But there's something greater than Jonah standing right here in your presence, Jesus is saying. You've met with something greater in my life, in my ministry, in the signs you've already perceived. Something greater than Jonah is here. And what about the queen of Sheba? And you can re read about this in your own time in 1 Kings chapter 10. It's fascinating. You ought to read it today. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Here's this queen living about 1,200 miles to the south of Solomon. That's why it says she came from the ends of the earth. And she hears, hears, about his wisdom and his God. And she travels that distance to meet him. And there, in 1 Kings 10, what you read is she was amazed and she was full of adoration. She gives, she gives worship to the God of Israel because of the wisdom she finds in Solomon. Nineveh and that queen will condemn these sign seekers because they responded with humble faith in the face of something infinitely smaller than these sign seekers are meeting with. They've met with the Lord. The kingdom of God is on display. The unmistakable power of the Spirit of God is on display. But they will not repent. By the way, notice the weightiness of Christ's claims. I mean, this is why you can't, you either receive Jesus or you've got to reject him. You, you can't stand in the middle on him. You can't try the, uh, you know, he was a good man card, good teacher. The claims he made leave you with no room except to say he was a deceiver and a fraud or to say he was the son of God. He leaves you with no room for anything else. Because in verse 6, look back to verse 6, he says, I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. All of the shadows, as we learn, the Old Testament rites represented a greater reality than, than themselves. And so the greater reality has arrived. The priesthood, the sacrifices, the one of whom all of that spoke is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And then he says something greater than Jonah is here. 
And then he says something greater than Solomon is here. You, you notice the categories. Priest, prophet, king. The greatest priest. The greatest prophet. The greatest king is who you've met with. They met with puny little Jonah and repented. They met with a man who ruined his own life in many ways, Solomon. And there was reverence. You're meeting with the greatest priest, the greatest prophet, the greatest king. And signs all around and you won't repent. Do you know what it's going to result in? It's going to result in great judgment. In the final day, you're going to be condemned. So let me finish with four lessons I pray we'll walk away with and apply to our lives. First of all, we must be convinced. We must be convinced that there is no more powerful evidence for the salvation of sinners than the Word of God. Sometimes people think, you know, I just wish we knew apostolic signs in our day. I mean, that's, that would really convince our generation. The reason why our evangelism sometimes proves to be so insipid, so weak, so powerless is because we haven't really tapped into the kind of power represented in signs. And I want to remind you that for the, the unregenerate heart, there is no sign that will ever secure faith. You can have signs blowing up all around you. And what the sinner will say is, I need one more. Give me another. Dear ones, you were not saved because of signs. You were saved because of the gospel. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit who opened your heart to the gospel. You were saved because God granted you the new birth. Not because of a power display. But because of a power that was on display. But you, you couldn't even know it or have predicted it. The Lord worked silently in your heart. Shining His light so that you saw His glory in the face of His Son. What do you need to be a powerful evangelist in this world? You need the Word of God. There is no more powerful evidence to be offered than Scripture. Our Lord taught that very truth, didn't He? Luke 16, 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. You get it? Would you send Lazarus back from the dead to tell my brothers? But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What are Moses and the prophets? Answer, the Bible. They have the Word of God. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And our Lord became the sign of that, didn't he? Because he was raised from the dead. I mean, they put a guard at his tomb to ensure that there would be no deception by his disciples. And the stone was rolled away, even as the disciples were mourning, because they didn't even understand the resurrection. They didn't go steal his body. They're mourning, and the stone is rolled away, and Jesus is not there. Why? Because he's been raised from the dead. And he, he appears to over 500 people at one time having been raised from the dead. This is not a, a story. This is not a hoax. This is not a myth. This is reality. And yet, the world is still full of unbelievers. Because they won't listen even if someone comes from the dead. Are you convinced that you have no more powerful instrument in your hands for evangelism than the Bible? Second, We've got to be convinced there is no more powerful influence for our own lives than the testimony of Scripture. What do you need? What do you need for your walk? What do you need for your life? What do you need for life transformation? You need the Bible. Yes, first there must be regeneration. Yes, the indwelling Spirit of God will take His sword in hand and He's going to be the one transforming your life. But the instrument that He will use is the Word of God. And, and the way that the charismatic movement has prayed on the people of God is with the promise that if you listen to us, you'll receive the something more. Yes, you have Jesus, but you need something more. Yes, you have the Bible, but you need something more. And what this kind of encounter demonstrates is that the most powerful witness you will ever meet with is the witness of Scripture. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness the moment He saved you. You have it in the sufficiency of His Son. There's not something more, something extra, some other blessing it's going to be given to you later that's going to change your life. You received it all when you received Jesus. We heard it in the baptismal testimony this morning. Now we've got to learn to walk in Him. 
but you have it all already on deposit. You just have to learn to walk in what God has given you in His Son. And if you don't believe that, if you don't know that, you're going to end up being deceived by the promise of something more. In fact, isn't it amazing that as our Lord confronts this evil and adulterous generation, He does it with a text that unbelievers in our day laugh at. The idea that a man was actually swallowed up by a great fish and spit up three days later. Let it be a testimony to you, Christian, that you and I are never wiser than to simply be like children and believe the Bible just as God has given it to us. You may want to imagine yourself smart, intelligent, scientific. Can I tell you something? The day you die, you're going to discover God, God spoke this world into existence in six days, and He rested on the seventh. How do you know that, Richard? It's what he said. It's what he said. He's the only one who was there. The day that Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, you could have taken out your stethoscope. You could have, you could have taken his blood. You could have run tests. You would have never been able to explain him being called out of that tomb. It was the power of God. And the God who spoke it all into existence in six days told you how he did it. Be smart enough to just believe him. And so when he tells us about Jonah and a fish, and you say, I don't know how that could have happened. Well, the fish was sent by God. That's how it happened. And God sustained him, and God delivered him right there on the shore of Nineveh so that he could do his work. Third, be convinced that what our God has done since the resurrection is also a testimony. What our God has done since the resurrection is also a testimony. Say, so what do you mean? Well, let me ask you something. Ninevites, Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. Queen of Sheba, Jew or Gentile? Gentile. What is our Lord saying? These people who humbly received the sign and the message were not Jews. Be warned. Be warned about your stubborn unbelief. Because the message that's being brought to you is mercy. And you turn your back on that mercy and God will take it to another people. And here we are, 2,000 years since the resurrection, as it were, and most people being saved today are not Jews. Most are Gentiles. That in and of itself is a testimony to what Jesus was teaching right here in this text. God is pleased to take what is foolish in this world's estimation and confound the wise. To take what is weak in this world's estimation and confound the strong. God entrusted a nation with all of this revelation and all of this privilege. How does it make any sense that they would be the ones to reject the Son of God and that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth and most of the people to be gathered in afterward are Gentiles? How does this make any sense? It just speaks of the sovereign wisdom of the God who saves. But here's the good news. The same God who's able to graft Gentiles in is able to return to what He promised to do from the very beginning, and that is He will pour out salvation upon ethnic Israelites before this is all done. 
and they will look upon him whom they've pierced and they're going to mourn. Be convinced that what our God has done since the resurrection is a testimony, it's a sign. Last thought, be convinced that the desire for something more than what God has been pleased to give you, God gave them signs. They wanted something more. Be convinced that the desire for something more than what God has been pleased to give you is a desire that must be mortified, not fed. I wish I had some glorious testimony. I hear people's testimonies and mine is so boring. Someone says, there are no boring testimonies of salvation ever. Because you know this, but our, our testimony in one sense, it's all the same. I was dead, but now I live. I was blind, but now I see. I was enslaved, but now I'm free. I was a God-hater, now I'm a God-lover. Some of us, when we were young, the Lord did that. Some of us, when we were older. Some of us had a life of deep sin before the Lord delivered us. Some of us were raised, as we heard this morning, in a Christian home, taught the gospel our entire lives. The same God saved us all. The same power explains it. Stop wanting someone else's life, someone else's story, someone else's message. Be thankful for what God has given you. And if you have the desire for something more, you've got to mortify that, not feed it. I'm not talking about growing in the Christian life. Yeah, I want to be more and more like Jesus. That should not be mortified. That should be fed. But the desire for something more than God's Word, that must be mortified. You want some feeling, you want some miracle, you want some experience, you're going to be deceived. Psalm 19 is such a wonderful psalm. It declares the wonders of God's general revelation, but it culminates with the wonder of God's special revelation. What is His Word? John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen Him, this is all of our story here this morning, though you have not seen Him, that is Jesus, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, this is the wonder, this is the power of God's work in a human heart. That while men desire what they can see and put their hands on, God gives us delight in what we have not yet seen by the power of faith that was supernaturally granted. You have a set of eyes unbelievers don't have. You have a set of ears unbelievers don't have. You have a heart that unbelievers don't have. Therefore, you have a delight in things the unbeliever cannot perceive. What do you need? More evidence? No, my friend, I love you when I tell you this. Your problem is not that you need more evidence. It's that you have an evil heart. And if you today will turn from your evil and believe what God has already given you in His Word, He will have mercy upon you and save you. And every bit of information you've ever been given is God arguing with you 
for your sake. It's mercy. That he would have mercy upon someone like you so stubbornly sinful. So may God grant you that repentance today. May you believe on God's Son. And the church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the verses that we've been brought to today. Thank you for the testimony of your grace and mercy in Jesus. Thank you for an unbelievably patient Savior. And we see, Lord, your patience with Israel in the Old Testament as you plead with a whore to turn from her whoredoms that you would have mercy upon her. Lord, today we plead with those who are stubborn in their sin, who think that the problem is everybody around them instead of them. Lord, have mercy upon them. Help them. Grant them what they need to take hold of your Son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.